We read the scriptures together in Luke chapter 18. We read Luke 18 in connection with Lord's Day 51 of the Heidelberg Catechism and the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer, Forgive Us Our Debts. Let's read the first 14 verses. And he spake a parable unto them to this end, that men ought always to pray and not to faint, saying, There was in a city a judge, which feared not God, neither regarded man. And there was a widow in that city. And she came unto him, saying, Avenge me of mine adversary. And he would not for a while. But afterward he said within himself, Though I fear not God, nor regard man, yet because of this widow troubleth me, I will avenge her lest by her continual coming she weary me. And the Lord said, Hear what the unjust judge saith. And shall not God avenge his own elect, which cry day and night unto him, though he bear long with them? I tell you that he will avenge them speedily. Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth? And he spake this parable unto certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. Two men went up into the temple to pray, the one a Pharisee and the other a publican. The Pharisee stood and prayed thus within himself or with himself, God, I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. I fast twice in the week. I give tithes of all that I possess. And the publican, standing afar off, would not lift up so much as his eyes unto heaven, but smote upon his breast, saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. I tell you, this man went down to his house justified, rather than the other. For every one that exalteth himself shall be abased, and he that humbleth himself shall be exalted. We read God's word that far. On the basis of this passage and many other passages of Scripture, The Heidelberg Catechism teaches us the meaning of the fifth petition in Lord's Day 51. Page 27 in the back of the Psalter. Which is the fifth petition? And forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. That is, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us, even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor.
Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the fifth petition of the model prayer of our Lord Jesus Christ, in which he teaches us the principles of Christian prayer, is forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. When the Lord Jesus Christ teaches us to pray this petition, as a petition, he is teaching us that this is something that we need. This is something that we desperately need. This is one of the most important things that we need, if not the most important thing, particularly for our souls. Remember that when we make petitions to God, we are bringing requests to him for things that we need, that we know we need, and therefore that we desire, we long for, but we can't obtain these things for ourselves. We can't acquire them by our own efforts. There's nothing that we can do of ourselves and through our own strength to obtain it. And therefore, we go to our Heavenly Father to pray for it. And we pray for it by faith that he will grant us what we pray. We saw last time that the fourth petition is, Give us this day our daily bread. And in that one, our Lord teaches us to pray for all things necessary for our body. And therefore, he teaches us to trust in God for all things necessary for our body and to look to him and to be content with those things that he gives us. In the fifth petition, when he teaches us to pray for the forgiveness of our sins, he's teaching us to pray for the first thing that is necessary for us in our souls. This is what we need in our souls. We need the forgiveness of our debts. In the parable that we read, the parable of the Pharisee and the publican, our Lord teaches us something about this petition. He teaches us something about the meaning of this petition and what this petition implies. And he teaches us what this petition looks like in practice when it is truly and sincerely made and offered to God. He also shows us, by contrast, what this petition does not look like and what this petition is not. That's why we read it, to help us understand the meaning of the fifth petition. So let's consider it together under the theme, Praying for Forgiveness of Our Sins. Notice, first of all, the petition for forgiveness. Notice, secondly, the ground of forgiveness. And finally, the fruit of forgiveness. When Christ teaches us to pray in the fifth petition, forgive us our debts, he is teaching us by implication that We are to know that we have debts. And we are to confess that. We are to know that we are sinners. And we are to confess that. 
We do not pray for the forgiveness of our debts, even though we might speak the petition many, many times in our lives, if we do not think that we have any debts, if we do not think that we have any sins, any transgressions, if we think that we are righteous in ourselves. The Lord taught this parable in Luke 18 to certain which trusted in themselves that they were righteous and despised others. There are people within the sphere of the covenant, within the external church, like this, this Pharisee in the, public, uh, in the parable, who trust in themselves that they are righteous. In their heart, they do not think that they have any sin, or certainly not very many sins. And if they do have any sins, they're really very small sins. And so they do not find any need to pray for the forgiveness of their sins. We do not pray for the forgiveness of our debts either. In any real, genuine, or sincere sense of the word, if we only pray in a general sense for the forgiveness of our sins in some abstract and theoretical sense of the word. If we only make this prayer day by day out of the attitude and out of the knowledge that we are sinners because we have been taught that we are sinners, if we only make this petition because we believe the doctrine of sin and we believe the doctrine that we are sinners and the doctrine that we are totally depraved sinners, And we believe that only in some abstract sense, and therefore we pray for the forgiveness of our sins. We're not really praying for it at all. We can be that way sometimes. We can sound very pious in saying that we are sinners and that we know that we are sinners. We can even be very adamant in condemning that Pharisee over there and his self-righteousness standing up in the midst of the temple, in the presence of all to watch, and praying out loud, I thank thee, God, that I am not as other men. I don't sin. We can be very adamant in our condemnation of that Pharisee and his self-righteousness, and be very adamant about our doctrine that we are sinners. But if we only pray for the forgiveness of sins in some general and theoretical sense, we're not really praying for it at all. If we fail to see our own specific sins, our own personal sins, and if we fail to acknowledge them, to recognize them, to confess them, then we're not really making this petition. If all that we ever do is to justify all our actions, All of our words, always justifying ourselves, always justifying everything we do and everything we say. And if we're always blaming everybody else for the wrong things that we do, instead of confessing it, blaming them, it's their fault that I did it. It's their fault that I did it. If we're always minimizing our sinful behaviors, if we're always thinking and telling others, well, it wasn't so bad, really. Don't make a mountain out of a molehill. 
And if we're always excusing ourselves for the sinful things that we do, then we can't, we don't, and we won't truly make this petition. We only make this petition when we recognize our need for it. When we recognize that we have debts. Specific debts. That in our minds and in our hearts, we know what they are. And we can list them. We can say them to ourselves. We know what the Catechism says. That we are poor sinners who commit transgressions and have a depravity that always cleaves to us, we know that not just as a general doctrine, we know that as a personal reality, as a personal experience. So I ask you, do you know your specific sins? Do you know the sins that you have committed, the sins that you commit on a regular basis that make you a debtor before God? Are you aware of the specific words that you speak, maybe that you speak regularly, the specific patterns of behavior of the words you speak, the specific patterns of the way you think in your mind, and the specific desires that come up in your, in your heart again and again and again. The specific actions that are part of your daily routine and behavior. Do you know what they are? Can you identify them? And I put that question to myself as well. All week long, we live lives apart from one another, and we don't see each other. You live your life in your house, and I live my life in my house. And in the privacy of our houses, in the privacy of our families, and our marriages, and our relationships with our children, and the workplace where we go, what are the specific sins that I commit and that you commit that we are guilty of? What are the secret, unseen, unknown, unheard thoughts that arise in our hearts that are contrary to the law of God? Do we know what they are? We don't know all of them, do we? As the psalmist writes in Psalm 19, cleanse thou me of secret faults, because we have secret faults as well. There are hidden sins, there are Sins that are so secret that they are below the threshold of our own consciousness and we are ignorant of them. And we ought to pray for the forgiveness of those sins too. We ought to pray, Lord, open up my heart to myself so that I know what are my secret sins, so that I I know the things that I'm doing wrong that I haven't come to know yet. And forgive me for those sins. But the fact is that we do know many of the specific sins of which we are guilty, don't we? We know. We're able to mention them because 
We come to church on Sunday and we hear the law read to us every single Sunday. We hear the law. And then we even receive the preaching of the law, the exposition of the law on a regular basis. And the law tells us what is right and wrong. And in that way, we come to see that's where I'm wrong. That's where I'm evil. Those are the things I do, whether it's gossip or blasphemy or cursing or drunkenness, whether it's sexual immorality, whether it's lies, whether it's dishonoring of authority or idols in my life. We hear the law preached and we know what our specific transgressions are. And what we need to understand now is each one of those specific sins that characterizes us rises up out of that depravity that still cleaves to us. Catechism speaks of that depravity that still cleaves to us. Every sin that arises up out of our mouths, in our minds, through our hands, through our feet, with our eyes, with our, with our tongues, each one of those is rising up out of that cesspool of wicked depravity that still lurks within us. So that we come to know that too. We're only going to pray for the forgiveness of our debts when we understand that we have a need for the forgiveness of our sins. But we're only going to truly and urgently make this petition when we also recognize how dreadful our sins are. When we come to see and appreciate that these specific sins that are going on in my life are a provoking of the wrath of the true and living God who is my God who loves me. I'm sinning against the law of my Father. I'm breaking His commandments every single time so that when we commit those sins, our conscience accuses us. Our conscience condemns us. Our conscience says, there you did it again. There you go again. Our conscience makes known to us how dreadful and miserable and wretched we are and makes known to us, you know, you deserve to go to hell for that sin. You're damn worthy because of that sin. That's what our conscience tells us. We deserve to perish for all eternity because of those specific sins that we commit. Then, then we start to understand our need for this petition. Because then we start to deeply regret our sins. We develop a deep hatred of them. And we mourn over them. We weep over them. We become broken and contrite in our hearts and spirits. And we go into the house of God, not like that Pharisee standing up, but like that publican. Far away. We don't want anyone to see us. We don't want anyone to hear us. And we fall down on the ground on our faces and we beat on our chests. Oh God, be merciful to me. I'm a sinner. A sinner. You don't do that if you merely acknowledge the general truth of sin. 
You do that when you recognize your sin. My sin. That's when we fall down and beat upon our chests. Oh God, be merciful to me. So you see, all of that is implied when our Lord teaches us to pray, forgive us our debts. That's all implied. What then is the petition? What does it mean? Forgive us our debts. Forgive us our trespasses. The Catechism teaches us that it means this. Be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood, not to impute to us poor sinners our transgressions, nor that depravity which always cleaves to us. Father, don't impute it to me. Don't impute it to me. That's what it means. That's the prayer. No doubt that comes from Psalm 32. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord forgives his iniquities, and unto whom the Lord does not impute his sins. The Lord does not impute his sins. Blessed is that man. That's the prayer for forgiveness of sins. Lord, don't impute to me my sins. Don't reckon them to my account. Don't hold them against me. Forgive me. So this petition for the forgiveness of our sins is not a petition for God to determine in his own mind and counsel to forgive our sins. We don't pray for God to decree that, to decide to forgive us. God has already done that. We confess that truth. We confess the truth of God's eternal counsel that before the foundation of the world, God has determined to forgive our sins through his Son, Jesus Christ, and he has elected us in Christ to unite us to Christ and to forgive us in Christ. We're not praying for God to determine that. We're not praying, in the second place, for God to provide us with a Savior who will bear our sins and our iniquities and who will make atonement for those sins, who will shed His blood in our place for our sins, who will lay down His life for our sins and make atonement, make satisfaction, and pay for our debts. We have all these debts, but we're not praying that God will send someone to pay our debts for us Because that's already been done too. That's already been done. That's all finished. That's all accomplished. The payment of our debts has been made. It's been finished perfectly and completely. Never to be done again. And because of that fact, because of those beautiful truths of the gospel, some have said, that we don't have to pray for forgiveness anymore. Some have literally said that, and I'm not just referring to our current controversy. I've heard this ten years ago. There have always been those who have said, because of that, because, because of God's eternal decree, to forgive us, and because of Christ's work at the cross to pay for our debts, because of that, we don't have to pray anymore for the forgiveness of our sins. That's false. Now, 
we do have to pray for the forgiveness of our sins. And they argue, well, the Lord taught this Lord's Prayer in the Sermon on the Mount, and that was before he died on the cross. And therefore, the petition for forgiveness only applied to the disciples and only in that short period of time leading up to the cross. But after the cross, we don't have to pray for forgiveness anymore because it's finished. But they betray their own ignorance of the Scriptures when they make such foolish arguments. Did not Christ send the Holy Spirit to inspire Matthew to write that Scripture? Long after the cross? He did. Why then did the Holy Spirit inspire Matthew to write those six petitions of the Lord's Prayer after the death and resurrection and ascension of Christ? Why didn't Matthew instead write, you don't have to pray for that anymore, it's all finished? Why does Matthew teach us, and Luke, that we must still pray for the forgiveness of our sins. Because God is pleased to give us the experience of that forgiveness in the way of prayer. What we need is to experience the forgiveness of sins. God has determined it, yes, Christ has accomplished it, yes. But we need to experience it. Why do we need to experience it? Because we sin. We sin every day. And when we sin, our conscience accuses us of that sin. Our conscience tells us what that sin is. And the preacher tells us what that sin is from the Scriptures when he preaches the law to us. And we come to know that sin And that conscience accuses us and attacks us and condemns us. So that as long as we try to ignore the conscience and suppress the conscience and dismiss it, we don't experience the forgiveness of our sins. That's what David experienced, and he tells us about it in Psalm 32. When I kept guilty silence... Thy hand was heavy upon me, and I found no relief. He didn't experience the forgiveness of his sins. God had already determined to give it to him. Christ was sure to come to accomplish it at the cross. But David wasn't experiencing it. All he was experiencing was the heavy hand of God. The unbeliever doesn't experience that. The unbeliever experiences all kinds of sorry consequences for his sins, and maybe he'll mourn and grief about those consequences. But the child of God, when he sins and he knows his sin, if he doesn't confess his sin, if he stubbornly, proudly, and rebelliously holds on to his sin, denying it, excusing it, minimizing it, then God will press his heavy hand upon him. He will press us down. He will squash us. And that's his grace leading us to repentance, leading us to confession of our sin, leading us to acknowledge, I've sinned. I'm a sinner. So that we groan over our sin. We weep over it. 
would beat on our chests like that publican. And then we pray. Father, forgive me. We're asking God to give us the experience of the forgiveness of our sins. We're asking God to take away that guilty conscience, to stop the voice of that conscience. We're asking God, rather, to speak into our hearts and into our souls through the preaching of the gospel, through the scriptures, and in answer to our prayers, I forgive you. I forgive you. I forgive you the specific sins that you're asking me to forgive. I forgive them. I don't impute them to you. I don't hold them against you. I forgive you. You are righteous. I love you. Now have peace. Be still. That's what we're praying for. And we need that. But on what ground can we make that petition? How can we come to God in prayer and ask him to forgive us? The Catechism teaches us, be pleased for the sake of Christ's blood. That's the only ground. Christ's blood. We cannot and we may not come to God and ask him to forgive us for the sake of the fact that we have forgiven our debtors. When we forgive our debtors, which we must, we don't then come to God and say, Father, please forgive me because, look, I've forgiven my debtors. Look what I did. Surely that amounts to something. That was hard work, Father. That wasn't easy. That was very hard for me to forgive my my brother. But I did it. I did it. I went to him and I forgave him for that dreadful thing he did to me. And so, Father, please forgive me too. Don't I deserve it, Father? Aren't I worthy of it? We have to understand that when we forgive our brothers and sisters their debts against us, that's a good work. But that good work is defiled with sin. It's not a perfect work. We have no perfect works. Even that good work, as hard as it may have been, is an imperfect work. It cannot stand before God as a ground 
for forgiving us. When we go to our brother and forgive him his debts, do we have no selfish motives? Do we have no reluctance? Are we overflowing with love and joy for that brother? Longing to forgive him his sins? As God is towards us when he forgives our sins? Or do we drag ourselves to the brother and almost force the words out of our mouths, I forgive you? There we see how defiled even our best works are. And even so, even if we forgive our brothers, that doesn't account for all of the sins that we have committed against God. What about those sins? Why should he forgive us simply because we have forgiven our brother? We still have all these sins that have to be dealt with. But maybe you will reply, can we not ask for forgiveness on the ground of the mercy of God? God is merciful. Won't he forgive us because of his mercy? Oh, you are right. He is merciful. God is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abundant and plenteous in mercy. And that's what the publican did. Oh, God, be merciful to me. He appealed to the mercy of God. God, be merciful, merciful to me. God's mercy is deep and rich and wonderful. And God's mercy is from everlasting to everlasting, unchanging, unfailing. It is an eternal and infinite fountain of mercy. But God is also just. And his justice, too, flows out of an infinite fountain of his being. He is infinitely just, perfectly just. And in his justice, God demands that we don't sin. And if we sin, he demands that there be punishment for that sin. Every sin must be dealt with according to his justice. If God fails to be just, then he is not God. If God justifies the sinner without any justice being done, God is not God. Yes, we beseech the mercy of God. But understanding the justice of God, we understand there must be a ground for this petition. On what basis? And the basis is Christ's blood. Don't ever ask God to forgive your debts because of anything you've done. You don't deserve it. I don't deserve it. Pray for the forgiveness of your debts for the sake of Christ's blood. Christ's blood. In many ways, it's just like our blood. 
He was a man just like us, a man of flesh and blood. He had a body just like yours and just like mine. And the blood that flowed through his veins was normal human blood. But when the Catechism says that we pray for the sake of Christ's blood, what it means to say is, because of the fact that Christ shed that blood on the cross. And when Christ shed his blood on the cross, too, that shedding of his blood in in many ways was, was no different from all the other criminals in the Roman Empire who shed their blood on crosses. And who died. It was a terrible, awful death. The agony of the cross is unimaginable to us. To have your hands and your feet pierced with long steel spikes by terrible, rough Roman soldiers and to be fixed to a wooden cross and to be hung up, suspended between heaven and earth to the jeers and the mockery of all the passers-by as your precious blood flows out drip by drip by drip. An awful, painful death. But the death of Christ was the death of the Son of God in human flesh and not the death of a mere man, the death of the perfectly pure and righteous Son of God who didn't deserve to die on that cross and who on that cross gave his life, shed his blood as a willing sacrifice. For the sake of the blood of Christ, which he shed on the cross, which isn't even the whole story, but you must see the whole of the scriptures and what the scriptures teach us about that shedding of his blood on the cross. Because it wasn't just the Son of God perfectly pure and righteous, dying a merely physical and temporal death, shedding his blood with all of its agony on a cross. But through that death, he suffered nothing less than the curse of God and the wrath of God that we damn worthy sinners deserve. He suffered it. The shedding of his blood is merely a picture of that awesome, amazing, infinite work of Christ on the cross. Giving his life, shedding his blood means he entered into the portals of death and hell and there he experienced all of the vials of God's wrath that we deserve. He passed through that darkness and through that death and through that hellish agony until he had made payment for every one of your debts and every one of mine. Father, forgive my debts for the sake of Christ's blood. That's the prayer. That's the ground. The only ground. God will answer that prayer. 
Because it's not a prayer that lays claim to anything that I have done or anything in me. It's a prayer of faith. We are justified by faith. We are forgiven by faith. By faith in Jesus Christ. And this is the prayer of faith. This is not a prayer of of man. This is not a prayer of works. This is not a prayer of laying hold and laying claim upon merit. This is a prayer of faith. This is a prayer of one who by faith lays hold upon the crucified Christ and says, Father, forgive me for His sake. Not for my sake. Not for anyone else's sake. That's the prayer that God hears. The prayer that renounces myself, renounces my works, and lays hold upon Christ. and says, Father, for His sake, for His sake, forgive my sins all my debts. God answers that prayer. The publican and the Pharisee. The Pharisee, I thank thee, Lord, that I am not like other men. I'm not a sinner. Doesn't even recognize his need. His sin. Proudly boasting of all of his good deeds. The publican. Falling on the ground. Beating on his chest. Lord, be merciful to me, the sinner. The sinner. I don't know about anybody else. But I'm the sinner. Lord, be merciful to me for the sake of Christ's blood. And Jesus says, that man went home justified rather than the other. When we go home justified, when we go home from the house of God having heard the gospel of the forgiveness of our sins in answer to our prayers, then we bear fruit. The fruit is that we forgive our debtors. I'm not sure which is harder for us poor sinners to do. To ask for forgiveness or to grant forgiveness? Which of those is harder? To ask for forgiveness or to grant forgiveness? Neither of them come naturally to us. That depravity that clings to us is filled with corrupt pride. And in our pride, we don't want to ask for forgiveness and we don't want to grant it. Christ has crucified our pride. And when we hear the blessed gospel that God has forgiven me, a wretched sinner, when we know the specific sins I've committed, the specific transgressions that I've done, and when we know God forgave that, He forgave me that. 
then we bear the fruit of forgiving our neighbor. We need to be nudged in that. We need to be exhorted. Paul does that in Ephesians 4, verse 32, where he says, Be kind one to another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, even as God, for Christ's sake, hath forgiven you. We need that exhortation. After we hear the gospel, we need, we need to hear that encouragement. Now go. And be tender-hearted. Don't be so stubborn. Don't be so hard-hearted. Be tender-hearted. Forgive each other. As God has forgiven you for Christ's sake. Catechism mentions... Even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, that it is our firm resolution from the heart to forgive our neighbor. Do you feel that in your heart? That's what it says. Even as we feel this evidence of thy grace in us, do you feel that in your heart? Do I? that it is my firm resolution to go to my brother, my sister, my neighbor, and forgive him. Don't answer that too quickly. Once again, we're not talking about generalities here or abstract theology. We're talking about that specific person in your life or in mine who hurt you, who lied against you, who slandered you, who bullied you, who committed adultery against you. We're talking about those specific people who cursed you who treated you badly, misrepresented your words. Those people, those specific people, is it your firm resolution in the heart to forgive them? That's the fruit when we know that God has forgiven us. And if there's a person in our life who has sinned against us like that, leaving aside now the unique sin of sexual abuse, which we're learning about, which is unique. But with regard to almost all other sins, is there a person who has sinned against us? Then what is our calling? To go to the brother, to tell him his fault, with humility and meekness, showing it from the Scriptures, asking him to confess his sins, and when he does, to forgive him. What does it mean to forgive my brother? Everyone talks about that. But to forgive is two things. 
Forgive means first that in my heart I do not impute to him his sin against me. I don't impute it to him. I don't regard it that he has done that to me anymore. I let it go. I dismiss it. I send it out of my mind. And I try to forget it. At first, I don't impute it to him. But it's more than that. Because that can be just in the heart. Forgiveness is not just in the heart. In fact, not even primarily is it something that stays inside of us. It's true. When someone sins against us, we must not hold a grudge. We must not be bitter and resentful toward the person. We mustn't harbor that. But that's not forgiveness. Forgiveness means you go to the person and to his face, you tell him, I forgive you. That's forgiveness. So that he knows. You tell him, I send away your sin. I dismiss it. I don't hold it against you anymore. Now let's go forward. We're brothers. We're one in Christ. And when we speak those words, they break down the icy wall that our sin formed. This is the fruit of the forgiveness of our sins, that we forgive our debtors. And when God works that evidence of his grace in us, that's our firm resolution to do so, and we actually do so, then we come to God with the petition on a daily basis. Forgive us our debts. Not because I have forgiven my debtors, but as we have forgiven our debtors. In that way, we continue to bring the petition to the throne of grace, and God grants it to us. Amen. Father, we pray for the forgiveness of our sins, and we thank thee for it. May we who have heard the gospel, who have been humbled, who confess our sins, go home today justified. Go home today knowing the joy of forgiveness and the blessedness of the man unto whom thou dost not impute iniquity. May our hearts thrill with joy at the great things thou hast done for us. And out of that joy and gratitude, may we be resolved to forgive